welcome to CAD Speaker Series Podcast. This week, Tim O'Brien, Research Fellow here at CID, will be interviewing Carolina Zambrano Barragan, climate change and urban sustainability expert from Quito, Ecuador. Carolina just delivered a talk on the challenges and opportunities for climate action in Latin American cities. She has worked in climate resilience and adaptation policies from both a local and a national perspective and believes that urban areas offer a unique scenario to pilot transformational change. Carolina, thank you so much for the talk you just gave on climate change adaptation and your experience in Quito, which kicked off CID's speaker series for this academic year. And thank you for joining us for this podcast. At the start of your talk, you described climate change as a super wicked problem. Can you talk a bit about what you meant by that? Yes, first, thank you too for having me here and giving me the opportunity also to think about my experience and actually reflect on what I have been through maybe in the past 10 years. <laughs> so it was also a learning experience for me. Uh, when we talk about super wicked problems, it's a term introduced by um, actually a friend called Kelly Levin and so a group of uh, colleagues from Yale University who used the original term, which is wicked problems, that uh, was um, proposed by a couple of scientists in 73. Uh, and added also some of specific terms. So a wicked problem is a societal problem that is not fixed by one single answer or solution. Uh, that is very complex, uh, that is unique, that is unstable and changes with time, and uh, that has a lot of uncertainty not only in relation to the impacts that it has on the society, but especially on the solutions that the society proposes to face them. So that's exactly what climate change is. And when we uh, add the super wicked problem, um, the super part is also related to four additional uh, features that are specific to climate change and that are key uh, uh, when we want to think about policy responses uh, at different levels, local, national, international, uh, to face that kind of problem. So when we talk about the super uh, wicked problem, it's also, uh, besides everything that we, we talked about before, one is that time is running out, so we can't keep stalling the, the solutions and waiting for another political will or commitment from different parts of the world because we may face a point of no return. And even if we, from here in 20 years, try to do something, it may be too late and we would be in a point of no return and we wouldn't be able to actually do something on time. The other one is that uh, they, um, it has a weak central authority. So if we think about a global climate change agreement and we have the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, it does exist. We have a, a central authority, but in a way it's not strong and constant enough uh, so that it can actually enforce the agreements and, and be effective in the implementation of the different agreements in the short, medium and long term. Uh, another feature of climate change it, it's that the people or the stakeholders that cause the problems are the ones that are the ones that are uh, looking for the solution. So uh, a lot of people in the society look for solutions for climate change, but at the same time, in everything we do, we actually emit CO2 emissions. So in a way, we have to figure out a way to solve a problem while also causing it um, at the same time. So all around the world, more people are starting to understand that climate change is not just a problem of the future, 
but it's already increasing vulnerability and impacting people today. So they hear about stories of recent flooding in South Asia, droughts across Africa, the current hurricane season and wildfire season in North America. Can you just help us understand a bit of the basic language of climate change? What's the difference between climate change mitigation and climate change adaptation? And how do you think about the connections between adaptation, resilience, and development? First, I would like to use your question to go back to the other question, and uh, it's perfect because it reminded me of the fourth feature of the super wicked problem, which is irrational discounting um, in terms of not adopting uh, policies that make sense in terms of the future. So it's perfect because right now we are already feeling the impacts of climate change in all over the world. And uh, it's very important first to understand that it's not a super technical a problem that we don't uh, understand or, we, or common people can't understand. It's very simple in a way. <laughs> it's like when um, you use a blanket to cover yourself or a comforter, you have something that covers you that doesn't let the heat escape. The, the thicker the cover is, or the thicker the comforter is, the less heat escapes. And that's what's happening to the Earth. You are putting a blanket over a blanket over another blanket uh, through our emissions in terms of deforestation, energy use, etc. Uh, and that's making the planet warmer in a way. And not only warmer in terms of the increase of uh, average temperature, but it's disrupting the climate system. So that's the thing. Um, in terms of the terminology of adaptation and mitigation, if you think about climate change as a problem, you have the causes of climate change on the one hand, the ones that I mentioned, for example, deforestation, emissions from agriculture, uh, energy use, transportation, etc. And when you talk about the causes and reducing the emissions related to those causes, you talk about mitigation. But then, of course, if you think about climate change and the causes, you also need to think about the impacts of climate change. And when you talk about how to respond and face and address the impacts of climate change as a person, as a community, as a city, as a nation, then you talk about adaptation. Um, it's not that it, there are two extremes and one, uh, that one thing you do can only reduce emissions and one policy you take may uh, be only focused on adaptation. But in a, in a lot of uh, ways, a lot of measures can have adaptation and mitigation benefits at the same time. It doesn't always happen, but, but it can happen too. And how should we think about adaptation versus building resilience and development in general? I think they are all interrelated. <laughs> in a way, resilience recently is being more used and has become more of a buzzword. <laughs> um, but I think when you talk about climate resilience and adaptation, you also talk about development in a way. Uh, and it's very important to give meaning to the word resilience because it's being used by different uh, stakeholders, maybe in a different way. If I, I think it's very important to think about resilience in a way that allows you to uh, receive an acute shock or a chronic stress, and then <clears throat> after receiving it, come back stronger and, and see that, cri that the crisis, in, in this case related to climate change impacts, may offer you an opportunity to uh, build 
new relationships to generate new initiatives or innovate in terms of policies. So um, in, in a way, you can also talk about transformational resilience. Maybe adaptation is more related to responding to a specific feature or a specific impact. And uh, it's always related to development because your capacity to respond to a specific climate impact is uh, directly related to your socioeconomic um, status, the access to different tools, technologies, or practices that you can have. Your talk today was titled Learning by Doing, Learning by Airing, Climate Resilience in the Latin American City. So who participates in the doing and airing of building climate resilience in cities? And what role does airing play and why is it necessary? I think if we talk about cities, we talk at the same time as in about the stakeholders and about scenarios where transformational change happen, uh, happens. Sorry, If we talk about cities and, and learning about climate resilience and doing climate resilience, you have different stakeholders that need to interact between each other so that actual change can happen. Of course, the first one is the municipalities or the local governments that can enact the different policies and also uh, create institutional arrangements that can facilitate learning, social learning, because we don't know how to face a super wicked problem like climate change, but we need to be to have social institutional processes that are dynamic and flexible and open enough that they that learning can happen. Of course, the people that feel the impact of climate change are the citizens, regular citizens, and also citizens that are part of different organizations or companies, so the private sector is also important. I think adaptation and resilience is about the social institutional process and not a specific measure in a way. And in a sense, given the urgency of climate change, Local governments and different stakeholders need to go to action. But sometimes you can ma make mistakes, uh, especially in my experience, what uh, I think some of the mistakes we, we, we made are more related to the social part of climate change and resilience and adaptation. On one hand, I can give you, looking back to my, my time at the municipality of Quito, maybe we should have engaged more with the vulnerable communities and the vulnerable stakeholders and find ways to uh, have their voice represented when uh, we were building the climate adaptation and climate action plan in general. In, in terms of representation of the different communities, uh, I think it's very, what we have learned <laughs> by not doing it's that it's very important to engage and uh, recognize neighborhood leaders, leaders and the citizen organization that happens more at the micro level, because that's what in the end gets replicated at the city level and even at the national and international levels. That's one thing, and, and also at the neighborhood level, is it's when social cohesion hap happens. And social cohesion is key if we want to talk about resilience and adaptation, because when you're in a neighborhood where people interact with each other and know each other, they take care of each other. <laughs> so when you face a disaster, especially related to, to climate impacts or natural disasters in general, the key to building resilience in that place is uh, social cohesion and the relationships that exist or may exist or you can facilitate to exist between people. And then another thing that, that um, 
maybe we can say was a failure for us is that uh, we thought that in recognition of the importance of the maintaining the link between science and policy and the constant feedback between science and policy, we uh, created the um, KITOS Climate Change Panel, following also the example of New York, uh, which also has the New York City Climate Panel or Task Force. Um, we thought the idea was great and then we, we also generated the panel. There was a lot of support by the, by the different uh, stakeholders in the local scientific community. But then we realized it, uh, that um, more incentives or even resources for research that would focus on the specific policy interests that we have were necessary and weren't, they didn't exist. So in the end, the, the climate change panel didn't end up working because maybe we should have recognized where the, what were the interests and the needs of the scientific community in Quito and in Ecuador so that they could get involved and keep being involved in that new institutional arrangement that we thought was very innovative and that would facilitate the communication and translation also from science into policy, but that needed something else to keep existence, existing, especially in a context of um, scarce resources. So I'm learning from you how important bottom-up solutions are in the case of Quito, how important social networks are to finding solutions to problems. To what extent do you think that the challenges and opportunities of climate change adaptation are particular to individual cities? Or does each city need to figure out its own path to climate resilience, or are there some solutions or processes that can be applied across cities? A specific climate change impacts are specific to, to specific cities. For example, some coastal cities may face the impacts of a sea level rise. Some Andean cities or uh, mountain cities uh, may face the impacts of water scarcity related to the disappearance of glaciers, etc. So, of course, you will have a to have a specific measures to respond to that. However, the most important part, as you said, are the social networks and the social arrangements and the institutional arrangements, and that is common to people in general, I would say. Of course, we have, we different, we have different cultures and societies <laughs> all around the world, but policy and social innovation and political innovation happens all over the world, and we can learn a lot about each other's experience because it's a new subject and learning how to deal with it and also to position it and make it visible within specific institutions such as local governments is a common challenge for every <laughs> local government official all over the world, I would say. And the same with national governments and, and some international organizations even. So learning that how to get better social structures that allow for bottom-up and up-bottom <laughs> approaches is key. And I'm sure, uh, as I mentioned before, for example, between the connection between science and policy, that we learned that from New York. We can learn that about that from Durban or from Geneva <laughs> or wherever. But what I think is key for that to happen is that you have to rely on more global or regional stakeholders or actors that could be the academia or could be international organizations or city networks or other kinds of networks that can facilitate that inter-regional, <laughs> international learning. Because if you don't have that platform, it can 
be physical or digital or whatever, if you don't have that place where people can, with common interests and common challenges uh, can come together and just talk and learn from each other, then it's really hard for that to happen, even in a globalized world like today. Mm -hmm. So we're having this conversation at Harvard, far removed from the places where the vulnerability to climate change is the greatest. What do you think that cities need more of or less of from the academic community? And what messages would you like to communicate to students who are studying international development right now as the climate is changing? So when we talk about climate change action, in terms of mitigation and adaptation, we talk about learning, of course, and about doing things, evaluating them, and then giving feedback to the process and try to do things better. So I think in the evaluation and the feedback, the academia is key. Not only the local academia, that of course is more aware and related to the local context of each city or of each country, but especially also the international uh, scientific community. Because going back to what I was saying before, it's that international community that has access to different cities, to different stakeholders, to different communities of practice, and can also have the time <laughs> to actually think about it, analyze the process, and give feedback. But of course, there has to be the relationship or and the channels between the scientific community and uh, the subject of the case studies. Because sometimes what I have seen is that the scientific community gets the information, creates wonderful papers, but not necessarily goes back and gives the feedback. Uh, so recognizing that and generating also the relationship with the scientific community within those countries that exist everywhere. Uh, uh, the countries, the, the cities that are subject of case studies and the practitioners, that's key. And going back to adaptation and resilience and development, I think something that is very important is to analyze how to better measure progress in terms of adaptation to climate change so that it can be even easier uh, to policymakers to actually communicate what they are doing on the one hand. And on the other hand, uh, being at the, Har at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, <laughs> I think it's key that if we are talking about policy, government, and institution, we, or, or the community related to, to Harvard specifically, starts to analyze how to create learning public institutions <laughs> that deal with political times and at the same time can think about the future and, and have like future forward thinking while doing policies for now. And what about students who are going through their classes and, and gaining awareness to climate change more and more, but also might be studying development broadly? What messages would you have for them? Climate change is about development. and <laughs> It's about equity. Uh, climate change is a, a, a really strongly related problem to development, because on the one hand, it is a result of the development model that caused an unequal distribution of resources of, and power all over the world. And at the same time, when it has stronger impacts uh, in developing countries, the global south, or the poor communities in developed countries, it exacerbates that inequity <laughs> related to development. So climate change, I think, first by the students should be seen as that, as an, as an international, national and local development issue, an equity, power, and justice issue, and of course an environmental issue too. And in that way, looking for solutions to talk about 
sustainable development and making it possible to no longer live in a world that thinks that you have to choose between conservation and development or nature or people, that, that, but that you can do both at the same time for people now and for people in the future. Then you can look for solutions from the policy area, from the science, technology, knowledge, etc. So looking for new ideas, new policies, new technologies <laughs> that can make it possible to no longer live in a world that thinks of a disjunctive between conservation and development. Well, Carolina, I just want to say thank you again for your talk today, which was wonderful, and taking the time to discuss on this podcast. We've really learned a lot from you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tim. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.